Good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Uh, would you stand with us as we enter into worship? You came and broke them down. You broke them down. There were chains around us. By your grace, we are no longer bound. No longer bound. Call me. You call me out of the grave. You call me into the light. You call my name and then my heart came alive. Your love is greater. Your love is strong.
you please take a moment and greet those around you? Join me in prayer. Oh, good morning, God. This is your day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For you are our God and we are your people. We worship your holy name. Lord, you are so big and we are so very small, and yet you care for us. You are mindful of our every thought and deed. You are for us and work all things together for our good. Your commands are for our good, too. Yet we must confess that we are easily distracted by worldly desires and temptations that promise happiness but fail to provide any lasting contentment. Hear now our silent confession. Thank you that your great love, mercy, and forgiveness, when we confess and repent our sins, you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that all who attended the Harvest Festival yesterday sense the spirit of your goodness about this place. May they be drawn to return to learn more about who you are and what we do here at La Jolla Community Church. Lord, we are so grateful that here in the United States of America, we are free to openly proclaim the name of Jesus and worship you. The world seems to be in great turmoil. We pray for the protection of our Christian brethren around the globe who are persecuted, many even to the point of death. May their peace and trust lie in the powerful name of Jesus who has overcome the world. We thank you for our military, firefighters, police force, for the role they play in protecting this land of ours. May they be bolstered by our prayers and experience a renewed public appreciation for what they sacrifice. Father, each one of us sitting here today carry concerns and challenges that seem too big for us. Hear now our silent prayers for transformation and healing. Jesus, you are the great unifier. You are our hope. We pray for unity and humble, cooperative spirits within our leadership, our community, and our church. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be.
privilege of introducing our guest speaker today, Steve Haas, longtime friend of LJCC. Steve is a dynamic spokesperson for World Vision's humanitarian work across the globe, and he engages with faith leaders, works on World Vision's core initiative, and communicates effectively about global issues that affect impoverished nations and, and impoverished people throughout the world. It's an absolute pleasure to have him here with us today. We're very fortunate. So please join me in welcoming Steve Haas back to LJCC. Thank you. Well, it is good to be back. Uh, I think it, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, you know, I don't actually attend that church, but I rent a pew. And uh, that's what it feels like when I come here. Uh, it just feels like home, which is always great. And so many great to see so many friendly faces and, and folks that have become just very, very dear friends. I think some of you know the drill. Uh, when Steve invites me, he always gives me a word or he gives me a phrase. Most of it's confusing. And then my job is to somehow make sense of that and then kind of deliver uh, what I believe God's laid on my heart. This one, uh, this was the phrase I was told that I was going to be speaking on. Um, this was the question. Evidently, you've been going through a wisdom series. I'm seeing people kind of nodding their head. That's always good when people are nodding their head in affirmation with the speaker. Um, this is the question I got. Why should I care about others when I have needs and challenges of my own? I actually wrote him an email. I said, is this what you want? You want me to talk about that? What, what do you? And then he gave me kind of a, a series of things that was actually so cogent that I could literally preach straight off that. And I just, I'm going to tell him, save that. That's really, really good. But the more I prayed about that, I really felt like the Lord was saying, I don't want you to talk about that. I want you to use this as a dropping, jumping off place. And so this is, uh, this is what came to me. This question that was stated, why should I care about others when I have needs and challenges of my own? It's a, it's a question that comes out of a worldview, by the way, that we've had since the creation it's an age-old question, if not exactly said the same way. You can see derivatives of this message throughout Scripture. If you just stayed in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you don't have to go very far, and you already see this coming up. Adam and Eve warned of certain dietary prohibitions. Don't eat of a certain tree, but there are other options. God made free-thinking men and women because he wants his love to be experienced, and you can't force love. They took another option. They decided that they had knowledge needs of their own, and, and so that what they were really saying is, why should I care about God's plan when it hinders my ability to operate like him? We, we, we know how that went. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Cain trades his birthright. Why should I care about the, my future inheritance benefit? I'm hungry, and I'm hungry right now. So he trades. They're just like story after story in Genesis. In fact, my challenge to you this morning is, go ahead and just start kind of making your way through the Old Testament and see where you see this lived out, this question. Why should I care when... I have needs and challenges of my own. My guess is in a very short span of time, you can come up with four to ten. And it really makes for interesting reading. And it's not just the Old Testament accounts. You see this in the New Testament as well. I could pick 
a variety. One that just saw in, my, in a devotional not, not long ago, Jesus is with a Samaritan woman. She meets Jesus. It's at the wrong time to be drawing water. In answer, she's really saying to Jesus, give me a drink. Can't you see that by drawing water at this hour, I have issues of my own. And by the way, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't mix. Having listened to this series to this point, perhaps the question could be rephrased differently. God, you're asking me to live a compassionate, grace-imparting life. You're, you're asking me to, to expend my limited and, might I add, somewhat hard-earned resources of time, treasure, and talent to serve others, whether it be those who are, are close to me or those who are really, really far away, those who I, you know, I probably will never meet them, and I don't, unless someone tells me their story, I really don't even know fully their story. In fact, you, you've expanded my boundary to even include loving my enemies. Bizarre. Enemies that have cheated me. That's why they're my enemies. They ding my reputation, and some of them even gloated about that. They, they defrauded me. They denounced me. Some of them even divorced me. You're asking me to care about them. But what about me? This whole faith experience seems like an awful lot of caring about them, their needs, their wants, but what about me? Couldn't we spend just a little bit of time on me? Well, I know I'm not talking about any of you uh, with that comment. Uh, it's maybe someone you're thinking about. Uh, maybe someone next to you, but I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't ever say it was, but we find ourselves relating. And when I got this question from Steve, I found myself relating. The truth is we all relate. From our vantage point, resources look scarce. The bank account doesn't look so adequate. The economy looks shaky, even though we've just come through the greatest economic boon in global history. Relationships are frayed. We, we feel shortchanged. Any wonder why we become less charitable? We start drawing in. The drawbridge goes up. The moat gets filled. We find ourselves warding out what a friend called becoming self-referential. We become self-referential. In a discussion with uh, a good friend, a pastor, uh, Rick Warren down at uh, Saddleback on his bestseller, Purpose Driven Life, he stated that one of the driving motivators for him to write the book in the first place was that he saw this tendency to orient ourselves around our needs, our wants, our desires, and tragically, like a spreading virus, when we do that, it somehow creates this contagion in which others start doing the same around us. It's like we wall up, they wall up. It's why the famous opening lines of that book that he wrote, Purpose Driven Life, it's not all about you. And I can hear the objection, wait a second, that's backwards, of, of course it's about me. What else could it be about? Who's going to care about me if I don't care about me? You can see what was going on inside my head as I was trying to figure out, Steve, what do you want me to say? When you and I made a decision to follow Christ, you and I swap our orientation as to who sits on the throne and immediately we become citizens of what you and I might call an upside-down kingdom. We're no longer the leader. We're following another leader. 
And I've said this before, and it bears repeating, given the noise of the world system that demands you concentrate on yourself, your needs, your wants, your desires, that's not the orientation of this new kingdom. In this one, you could say that your life and mine is a daily exercise of growing in understanding of what it means to live out into this new reality. The Bible has a word for it. It's called sanctification. It's this big, big, you know, 40-cent word, sanctification. But it's about me learning to live out what it means when I'm no longer on the throne. Now, I could spend the rest of the talk this morning talking about all the benefits of living into this kingdom reality what is ours as we make this decision to live life according to God's will his way and I hope in the maybe the small moments at the end to maybe tease out a few of those but I was only given 25 minutes and I just found myself overwhelmed it's not really the what that I struggle with in fact I can make this sound like a sales event for God The part that I find confusing is how to do this. I've noticed an awful lot of folks who live into this new kingdom reality, they've had this relationship with God for years, but they get to this question, why should I care for others when I have needs and challenges of my own? And that's a dominant question in their life. And I just need to tell you, if you're taking a self-diagnostic and asking yourself that question or find yourself asking that question a lot, that's not a good sign. Let me begin by providing a new kingdom certainty, something that, that bears repeating. It is all His. It is all God's. This has never been about your time, your treasure, your talent. No, it's His time, His treasure, His talent, His universe. That's the upside-down nature of this kingdom. All authority, all direction is to be oriented toward Him. The psalmist certainly understood this. He continued to, under, to underline the importance of this by registering this truth. If you read through the Psalms, you're going to find yourself hearing this over and over again. The earth is the Lord's, it says in Psalm 24, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, for you have set your glory in the heavens. Though the praise, through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what's mankind that you're mindful of him? Human beings that you even care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. By the way, this was what God was trying to impress on Job in Job 38. Hey, Job, who is this who obscures my, that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line to cross it. 
Or where were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? I can guess your question. Why is this so important? Why make a meal out of the God's lordship over all things this morning? Because it's all his. And if it's all his, ergo, it's not yours. In this new kingdom reality, we voluntarily give up rights not only to all of this, but we also give up rights to ourselves. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He goes further to say you were bought with a price. You're under new management. Namely, that God places his spirit within you. You are his. It's all his. And the moment I begin to take the lordship responsibility for my own life, things become dysfunctional. Things begin to go off kilter. There's a misalignment in the way in which this kingdom thing works. St. Augustine called it confusion as to the right ordering of love. That's what he called it. He said, due to our fear of not having enough, our insecurity, we, we, we place our love of ourselves in front of our love of God. The love of our wants, our needs, we place that over of what God wants to provide for us. It's a misordering of love. The Bible has another name for it. It's called sin. It's just sin. The love of self supplanting the love of God and priority. And that's not to say that you shouldn't love yourself. In fact, it's okay to love yourself. The Bible's really clear. In fact, it's so clear as to say that that if you're going to love another, you should love them as you love yourself, the way you love yourself. It's just that that love of God has got to become priority. That his design, his direction takes precedence over my life design. Now, down through Old Testament history, the Hebrew people were to understand this, so much so that there was a never-ending rehearsal of stories that were given out related to God's mastery of the universe. Over and over again, you would hear them go through this almost like a feedback loop. And why is that important? Because it was important for them to remember that God's disposition toward them was one of love, meaning I, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-owning one, provide for you, protect you. I show my love by doing these things for you. The Old Testament writers mentioned this over and over, the litany of God's faithfulness is they looked at to God for securing every aspect of their life. And so you hear it, this God show up story, this feedback loop, this Old Testament loop over and over again. Was this for God's benefit? No. Like God's going to forget if you don't remind him that he's done all these things. No, this is because you and I forget it. We forget it. We're so prone to forget it. And when we forget it, we begin to grab. We begin to grasp. We begin to tunnel for ourselves. And when I was uh, raising our kids and they were at home, I decided that I, maybe they're not getting enough of the kind of the regularity of Scripture. And so at dinner time, after dinner, we'd have dinner, we'd have dessert. If we had dessert, we didn't have much dessert at the Haas family, too much sugar. Uh, then we would jump into Bible reading. And we would usually take a couple of chapters. And I just need to tell you, when we started going through the Old Testament, it was pretty hard slogging. 
because it seems like they're doing really well, and then they're not doing really well. They're up, and then they're down. And it didn't take long for my kids to realize, oh my gosh, those spiritual people in the Old Testament are just like us. In their relationships, they seem to be really in a relationship with God and then not in a relationship with God. He's providing and protecting them, and then they get arrogant, and then they do it their own way, and they need his help. This morning, it's good and necessary for us to remember it's all his. This afternoon, it will be necessary to remember again it's all his. Tonight, when you relate to your community, when you say your evening prayers, when you pay your bills, when you take a shower, when you relate to your spouse, when you pat the dog, it's all his. If your life is really doing well, it's all his. If you find yourself in a real shadowy season, it's all his. And cognitively, I think we all get this. Uh, I live in Seattle, uh, where we look at the people of La Jolla as being probably smarter than us, because you actually live here. Um, I think you get this. It's all his. I think the challenge becomes, and how do I live this out in a day-to-day -day relationship? How do I do that? How does living in this new community become real for each one of us? Let me give you an illustration. My, uh, I have a good friend named Glenn Murray. He's just written a book called Uncommon Thoughts where he unpacks 85 years of life and just throws out some things that he's learned. He did a study. He decided to ask dozens of Christian faith leaders this question. What percentage of your church is experiencing intimacy with Jesus? What percentage of your church is experiencing intimacy with Jesus? with Jesus. When he pulled together the accumulation of data that he received, keeping in mind that you needed appropriate words for different denominations to actually explain what intimacy with Jesus, what he meant by that, he got back about 5 to 10%. He couldn't believe that, so he actually took that to a pastor's conference, a very large pastor's conference, said, I need some help. This was my survey. Is this true? And they came back to him after their own evaluation, and they said, that's true. Notice that the question wasn't, what percentage of your church is saved? His sense would, was that that would be about 80 to 90%. No, the question was, who's experiencing intimacy with Jesus? And my guess is that there are many who have decided to follow Jesus, have even committed their lives to him, but they're not experiencing this sense of inner abundance or what I might call an intimacy in a relationship with God. One of my favorite verses at World Vision, by the way, comes from the mouth of Jesus. It's John 10, 10, where he says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. In other words, I love it because I can see the reality of that. I'm I want the reality of that. I want to be in close communion with God. I want that abundant life that he says is mine. I see it. But if these stats are right, then for so many of us, we're not experiencing that in our relationship with Jesus. For most of us, that's not our reality. And so because of that, we clutch our stuff. Because if we don't, who will? We go inward. 
In my own small survey, there are many who have decided to follow Jesus, even committed their lives to him, but they are not experiencing this fullness, this abundance, this intimacy with God. And I grew up in a Christian subculture, maybe like many of you, uh, where the ways to cure that were you just need to be more Bible studies. Um, if, you, if you just memorize more Bible verses, if, if your devotional time just kind of got elongated, if you went to a seminar, if you attended seminary, if, 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 if you go to that conference or this church service or this worship experience, if you just did that service project. But to be honest, all that did is just intensify the sense that what was over there was over there and I wasn't there. And that there was a chasm between where I stood and what I wanted, what I needed. There was this give and take that needed to happen. And I wasn't experiencing it. This flow that needed to be exposed to me. And intimacy, I think, would be the right word to describe it. I like the way Jesus describes it five verses later, John 10, 15. As the Father knows me, so I know the Father Literally, knowing and being known. How do you and I experience that level of intimacy? Revelations 3.20 is an interesting passage. John records a letter to the church of Laodicea. What's interesting is when I, during kind of my early faith journey, I was told that you need to be witnessing. And one of the favorite verses was Revelations 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I literally use that to exhaustion. You know, this was that about God is knocking on the door of your heart and if you just open it, he'll come in. But wait a second. That verse was written to the church. The lukewarm church. Jesus is knocking on the door. It helps also if we understand hospitality in the Middle East, because that's where this was stated. In the last three years, I've had a chance to have hundreds of meals in the Middle East, and i got to tell you something. They know something about hospitality. Whoa. I have a good good friend named Moafak. He's a businessman, and he just decided that just as typical hospitality, he should give me dinner. And so we went to like one of the most exclusive restaurants in Beirut and had this incredible meal. I didn't even, it didn't even have prices on the menu. It was one of those places. (laughs) Do you like the wine? I love the wine. It's incredible. That night on my bedside, as I came to my hotel room, there was a bottle of that wine. How did it get there? How did he know? Hospitality. I visited a second time, and he said, now I want you to come to my house. And something happened from the incredible restaurant to his home. What was he saying to me? Intimacy. I want you more intimate. I want our relationship deeper. Jesus is knocking on the door. We have a relationship, but I want to I want to fellowship with you. I want to sup with you and you with me. You want to be hot with me. Like so many verses, we use this one and unfortunately we misinterpret it. It's an invitation to greater intimacy. 
So much of Paul's writing is this. If you start reading it with this as a filter, you're going to see passages just open up to you. He uses this phrase that I might know him. The word know. There are many words in the Greek language for know. But there's one called gnosko. It's the one he uses. If that was transliterated into Hebrew, it would mean sexual relations. What's Paul saying? That intimacy is this close association, so close that it actually equates to this physical love and bonds that a man and a woman have with one another in marriage. That's how close God wants to have an intimate union with you in terms of your experience of him. Paul even says that I might know him. That's the goal for the follower of Jesus. Well, how much do you and I know him? My guess is it's this experience of many of us here. It's in direct proportion to how much I let God know me. Earlier, I used the illustrations in this first uh, book of the Bible to underline our tendency to be self-referential. But if we just even jump back into that, notice some things. Garden of Eden. Creation was meant to enjoy fellowship with their creator in the cool of the day. There's a walking back and forth, tied in relationship as, as both experience the love, this love flow between one another. And then there's a break. There's a wanting, a willful disobedience, a wanting to go my way versus his. Then shame. And then we hide ourselves. And God comes looking for where they're hiding. Adam, he says, Adam, where are you? Did God not know where Adam was? It's laughable. In fact, in a passage not far after this, he says, the blood of Abel screams from the ground. Cain's going, I didn't think anybody saw that. God knows positionally where you are. He's inviting the question as an invitation to join him relational intimacy. The question is, do you want to answer? In honesty. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I just hid This isn't to say that there's not consequences for disobedience, but relational intimacy is restored with Adam at that moment. Later on, he has the conversation with Cain. Where's your brother Abel? It's an invitation to intimacy. What does Cain do? He balks. And what does God say? Now you're under a curse driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it'll no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer of the earth. And it's so much that Cain is just overwhelmed. Broken. Relationship. Intimacy that needs to be restored. The story of Jacob. What's your name? My name is Jacob. I'm a supplanter. I cheat people. I don't do it the right way. What's the answer? You're now Israel, because that's an honest response. And in essence, I'm going to build a people on that level of honesty with me, on that intimacy with me. 
I could go on. There's so many examples. The Samaritan woman, Jesus' dialogue is an invitation. The entire dialogue is an invitation to intimacy. How well did she understand that dialogue? What does she tell the people when she goes into her town? He told me everything that I ever did. I mean, there's a level of sharing that took place that is so deep and intimate. He knows everything about me. It begins by allowing ourselves to be known by him. Well, where are you? God wants intimacy to be the definition of our relationship with him. But it's really important that you hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating amping up your commitment level. I'm not doing that. It would be so easy for me to go this way here. And I've seen so much manipulation in far too many faith centers across the country. I mean, often what is used here is this covenant of a marriage. Jesus, the groom, in love with his body, the church, the bridegroom. And there's so many verses on that where he uses that metaphor, this metaphor that just connotes intimacy. And I love the covenant of marriage, this promise of one for another. But that's about the boundary you're setting up so that you can experience intimacy. You need that boundary. It's one of the reasons why when I hear someone say, well, wait a second, didn't I already do that when I came to Christ? I mean, do I need to now do this intimacy thing? Wasn't I intimate when I kind of said, yes, I'll follow Jesus? I mean, do I need to do that again? It's like the husband saying to his wife, I said I loved you at the altar, and if it changes, I'll let you know. No, you need that commitment because that commitment is the starter. It's the platform. It's the, it's the boundary. But now i got to walk it out. I'm also not saying get more knowledge. Like that will help you get intimate. No, that just opens the door to arrogance. Too easily. I love knowledge. I love studying the word. I love Bible studies, conferences, seminars. Often I speak at them. But if that's all I've got, if that's what I'm wagering in becoming more intimate with Jesus, I've missed something. I've become a Pharisee. And I, by the way, have a lot of personal experience in that one. This isn't just about going to him when I screw up. This is about running dialogue with him for my entire life, releasing my demand on my governance of all things and releasing control to him. My question today, where are you? And it's a personal question. It's really a reflection on your own spiritual condition. Where's your brother or your sister? It's a good question of God being asked of me and of you in terms of my own relational world. How am I doing in my marriage or with my associates at work? With my neighbors? Coming clean with him. Will you open the door? What challenges do I have that I've put in place such that I am not living a life intimate with him? It's almost like you've got a, a GPS that's constantly pinging him. That's the way I liken it to. In which constantly, hey, hey God, we're about to go into this conversation over here and I really don't know what I'm going to say, but I sure would love to 
take your guidance. And so I'm going to be listening moment by moment for you to tell me what to say. And if I'm not supposed to say anything, then shut me up. Because I'm so prone to speak. Because I live out of my words. And words are so damning if I'm not careful. So I just need you to prompt me. And I will follow your prompt. Whatever you want me to say. Whatever you don't want me to say. My purchases... My life decisions, the people I hang out with, constant. It's intimacy. My guess is that you won't release the strong grip on your life until you get comfortable with God's embrace of you. You'll only get that in that intimacy with Him. Yesterday I was over in Walla Walla, Washington. Anybody know where that is? Uh, it's quite a place. It's where my son goes to school at Whitman, and he was the lead in a play there. So in order for me to get here, I needed to go across the state, see him in the play, and then basically get back to Seattle so I could fly out and get down. And we only had about an hour for breakfast because he's a college student, right? So he doesn't get up at 6. And uh, I don't even think he knows that that even exists. So we, uh, we had a quick breakfast, and the way we did breakfast was Starbucks and then walk. It's really interesting, the conversation... Because we just talked about everything. It was a sign of our intimacy that we felt comfortable enough to be able to just unburden our hearts. We've gotten to that place where it's more than just dad to son, it's brother to brother. And so it's about spiritual challenges. It's about life issues that we're dealing with. It's good, bad, and ugly. But it's just two men on the road walking together and growing in our love for one another. I noticed something. I don't think we would have that if he's leaning on my level of success. How much I've taken care of him over these years. Uh, the nature of my payments to his school, and they have been a lot. This gets developed when he turns to me and unburdens his heart. And I unburden my heart to him regularly. And then we go forward in intimacy. I'd like to close with a, a story from a friend named Keith Stewart. Um, Keith is, uh, I, some of you know I take a lot of trips overseas. I'll take different leaders to go see our work and often they end up investing in the things that we do. And now in a little less than 100 countries, it's become a big staff, about 38,000 of us. And uh, this was one of those church pastors from Dallas who went. This was some years back. And I must say, and I've told Keith this to his face, so if he's, Keith, if you're listening, uh, know that uh, I've already told you this, but this guy was the most unique guy I'd ever taken on a trip. This is a guy who had his own videographer with him. And I just didn't quite know where he was coming from. They say it's bigger in Texas. It just seemed like there was parts of his part with us that just seemed production. And it just, I, as he got into leaving for the trip, I remember just thinking, you know, I'm not sure he really got what we were trying to show him and help him understand in terms of the lay of the land of what's happening around, in this case, HIV and AIDS and its impact, the pandemic's impact on Africa. And then he got home. And some things began to happen. This is what he wrote. 
He said, Ward Brim once wrote, they say that if God wants to get your attention, he'll toss a little pebble into your life. If that doesn't work, he'll throw a rock. As a last resort, he'll heave a brick. Africa was my brick. It rocked my world in ways I never anticipated, seeing with my own eyes the devastation caused by extreme poverty, lack of access to clean water, the HIV and AIDS pandemic, and preventable diseases like malaria truly made me wonder how anyone could be as willfully blind as I was. I used to say I went to Africa to help save Africa. Now I know God had the opposite in mind. Remember the upside-down kingdom. He brought Africa into my life to save me. Not long after that fateful trip while running at White Rock Lake in Dallas, I sensed God say to me, I want you to apologize to the community for the kind of church that you've been. Instantly, I knew what he meant. I didn't know how he knew it. I just did. When you begin this relationship, this building of intimacy, don't be surprised by divine dictation. Someone who's new in Christ, this is a really weird experience, but you have a supercharged conscience in which God begins to give dictation. I want you to go over here. Yeah, well, I've never been over there. Why would I do that? Because I want you to. I want you to ask for forgiveness. Yeah, but I was the one that was defrauded. I want you to ask, you had an oddness. I want you to ask for forgiveness. The prompt. You can do it or you, you don't have to. If you want intimacy, you'll do it. If you don't want intimacy, you won't. He got this message. Apologize. The church took out a full page ad in the Dallas Morning News. In large bold letters in the center of the page it read, We were wrong. At the bottom of the page was our apology. We followed trends, I quote, we followed trends when we should have followed Jesus. We told others how to live, but we didn't listen ourselves. We, we live in a land of plenty, de denying ourselves nothing while ignoring our neighbors who actually have nothing. We sat on the sidelines while AIDS ravaged Africa. We were wrong. We're sorry. Please forgive us. The only other thing printed on the page was our church name, phone number, and website. We offered no explanation beyond the words of our apology because explanations at the point of apology always sound like excuses. We only wanted to speak the truth about our behavior and offer a sincere apology to those whom we had hurt. I didn't share this in the first service, but this is also what he said. Sadly, the church today is better known for its political stance than helping the poor, feeding the hungry, or helping and healing the hurting. Do we dare believe the church could be known for its love and compassion more than its rhetoric and judgments? And he said, that's one risk I'm willing to take. So where are you? Where's your brother? Where's your sister? What's your name? The entrance into intimacy is answering those questions. Daily.
openly, honestly, transparently. It's interesting, at Spring Creek Church, that's the church of my friend, he says, in the years since our apology, it's become an entirely different church. What he doesn't say here is that there were many people who left his church. Like, what are you doing? What an embarrassment. To the whole city of Dallas, really. That you would do this to us without our permission? How dare you? He said they got replaced in multitudes by people who are desperate for intimacy. You can live without sex. You can't live without intimacy. Our world is dying for intimacy. All the newfangled everything, it's not bringing us closer to intimacy. He says in the years since our apology, an entirely different church. Hundreds and hundreds of children now have sponsors in Kenya. Networks of wells, pipes, water kiosks to serve thousands who fetch water from polluted lakes and streams. Children no longer regularly fall ill to easily preventable diseases like we once did. Everything for them has changed, as has everything for us. Will you allow yourself to be known? I'll tell you how I pray about this church. I pray that it's an 80 to 90%, nay, 100% intimate church. It's not the building people are drawn to. It's when a collective body begins to live out this experience in such a way that people are just drawn to it. So where are you? May you respond in intimacy. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to to relate to you in this way. You're the great God. It's all yours. Out of your command, you could do whatever you want, however you want. But you approach us softly with questions, not to reorient yourself, but to reorient us. Father, open our minds and heart to be honest with you, transparent, and take steps into deeper intimacy with you. This is your goal for us. Might we answer in obedience? In your name we pray. Amen. We now come to the part of our service for our tithes and offerings. And for those who call La Jolla Community Church their home, this is an expression of giving back to the Lord what he has given to us. If you're a guest here today, please just drop your Connect card and prayer request in the basket. And as the ushers uh, make their way to the front, let us bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundant blessings you give us each and every day. Even when it feels like financially we're not able to stretch ourselves any further, you come through for us. Lord, and we give back to you now out of that abundance. May you use these gifts to draw more people into a personal, saving relationship with you. Amen. How great the chasm that lay between 
trust without borders, going deeper. How do we do that? Sounds so attractive. How do you and I do that? Jesus was speaking to an agrarian society. He, he said, take my yoke upon you. Literally, the image of a giant ox, wise, seasoned ox. And to the neophyte, they hitch up too. The pressure and the power is really from the big one. But the little one learns as it walks alongside and shares, just like I did with my son. It's an exchange. The trust border gets bigger. It's called intimacy. And it's open to every one of us. Not the degreed only, the undegreed. Not the wealthy, just the wealthy, the poor. Everyone gets an opportunity. But the question is, do you want it? Because in love, God still gives us that opportunity to say yes or no. This morning, we're being called into intimacy with him. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask, think, or ever imagine. To him belongs all glory and honor today and for every day following. Amen.